I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending June 11th. In early May, a criminal organization successfully pulled off a ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline, forcing a temporary shutdown of a pipeline that delivered refined gasoline and jet fuel from Texas to most of the eastern seaboard. Debilitating cyber attacks seem to be increasing in both frequency and severity. What's going on? This week, our guest is Damon Small, a technical director at the NCC Group, a security company that specializes in several industry verticals, including the energy sector. Before we get to our interview, here's a quick rundown of some of the articles we've published in EE Times this week. As if to underline the point that cybercrime is getting out of hand, it just so happens that several of our stories this week are about cybersecurity. Part of the reason that the number of cyber attacks is increasing so very rapidly is that we keep adding internet connectivity to more and more products, expanding the universe of potential targets for criminal hacking. We're connecting everything from parking meters to household appliances to vehicles and thereby making them vulnerable. Now, if someone were to hack our refrigerators, that would not be insignificant, but I think we can all grasp why it would be worse if criminals were to start interfering with our cars and trucks. And that's where we are today. This week, we have the second in a two-part series of reports from auto industry analyst Agil Huliason. In the first part, he discussed the risks involved with connecting vehicles, and in this latest article, he reports on who in the auto industry is doing what in terms of automotive cyber safety. Another article takes a look at how the rising complexity of automotive software is complicating the challenge of making connected cars secure. It was written by Ahmed Majid Khan, an engineering manager at Siemens Digital Industries Software. We also have stories on the U.S. Senate allocating $52 billion to support the domestic semiconductor industry. On IBM suing global foundries, essentially over the latter's decision in 2018 to cease work on a 7 nanometer IC manufacturing process. We have technology highlights from the International Memory Workshop, and we have an overview of TSMC's technological roadmap in the so-called more than more era. For all of these stories and more industry news and analysis, visit our website at eetimes.com. If you reached this episode through our podcast webpage, there are links to all of these stories on your left. In the last 30 years or so, sophisticated digital systems have opened a new avenue for bad actors to cause incredible amounts of havoc. Way back in 1989, a book called The Cuckoo's Egg was published. It was a best-selling non-fiction account written by Cliff Stahl, an astronomer by training who was working basically as an IT guy at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. He discovered the presence of a hacker who was trying to infiltrate the computer systems at the labs, and he began trying to track down whoever it was. Stahl wrote that on one occasion, he jangled his car keys over some wires to create enough disruption to defeat one of the hacker's attempts to gain entry. That was more than 20 years ago. We cannot pretend we didn't know there were malicious hackers out there. We know for a fact that cyber attacks have been 
and continue to be literally relentless. It's an article of faith among security experts that every major company and government in the world has been hacked, whether they admit it or not. Many cyber attacks are criminal in nature, but Russia, China, North Korea, Iraq, Israel, and the United States are among those suspected of having cyber capabilities if they don't have them overtly. The U.S., for example, formed its Cyber Command in 2010. Last December, it was publicly acknowledged that a criminal group said to be backed by Russia penetrated multiple U.S. federal agencies. That attack, known as Solar Winds, was nowhere near the first successful penetration of U.S. government digital systems. And it goes all ways. In 2010, a computer worm known as Stuxnet is said to have crippled an Iraqi nuclear facility. The suspects for releasing that one are the U.S. and Israel. In 2017, the Petya cyber attack paralyzed the operations of a global shipping company, disrupting business around the world. During that attack, and others that were similar, individual hospitals around the world were also shut down. That the hospitals were affected was probably inadvertent, but if they were hit by mistake, shouldn't that be more alarming? Just this past May, a criminal organization based in Russia called Darkside managed to enable a hack of Colonial, which operates oil pipelines in the U.S. Colonial had to stop using one of the pipelines it operates. Some people on the East Coast began hoarding gasoline. Colonial resumed transporting gas products after a few days. The thing is, if you thought that after 30 years of ceaseless cyber attacks, such critical infrastructure would have been hardened against attack, well, you now know you're just wrong. NCC Group is a cybersecurity company that works with companies in a number of verticals, including finance, technology, retail, and energy. Damon Small is technical director at the NCC Group. EE Times contributing editor Anne Thrift spoke to Spall for an article she did on the Colonial Pipeline attack a few weeks ago. We invited Small to come to the weekly briefing and give us an update on what we've learned about that hack and what that means for the world's preparedness in the face of the cyber attack onslaught. So, Damon, can I get you to give us a, a summary of what happened with Colonial Pipeline and what the what the uh, security breach was, and then maybe we could talk about some of the remedies afterwards. Yeah, really good questions, Brian. So, unfortunately, even today, we don't know exactly what the so-called patient zero was. We don't exactly know how the adversary in this case got in exactly. It could have been from a variety of ways. It could have been something like phishing where someone divulged credentials. Um, I, however, think that the likelihood is that it was a vulnerable system that existed within Colonial Pipeline through which the adversary, in this case, the adversary's dark side, uh, that's been widely reported, uh, and they were able mm -hmm. to uh, gain unauthorized access and spread their malicious software that, as you and your listeners know, it, uh, ultimately led to uh, DarkSide taking control over some critical systems uh, within, within Colonial. Uh, what this resulted in um, is that Colonial had to shut down for several days, uh, which had a huge impact on the supply chain 
uh, of fuel products making their way from the refineries in southeast Texas, where I live, uh, coincidentally, I'm in Houston, uh, to the East Coast. So, you know, it was unauthorized access. There was a vulnerable device that was discovered by the bad guys. The bad guys took advantage of it. And one interesting thing that I want to bring up quickly, because I think it's an important point, is a lot of folks correctly have pointed out that uh, it was the IT systems that were attacked uh, not the OT systems or the operational mm. technology systems. And that, while that might be true, it still disrupted the organization such that they had to cease operations. So Colonial Pipeline, even if it wasn't an OT system that was attacked, they still had to shut down. And there's reasons for that we can talk about if it's of interest. But, let, you know, I, I, that's the most direct answer I can give you. That That's what happened. Yeah. So we we have some sense of where they got in, perhaps, but not how they they got their their initial entree. Mm-hmm. Um, are are we still able to, uh, with what we do know about what the hack was, um, does that give us lessons for other infrastructure companies about how they should uh, protect themselves? Yes, it does. Um, and I alluded to this just a moment ago. So we tend to talk about critical infrastructure. And, and I use that word with a capital C and a capital I, critical infrastructure, as defined by the Department of Homeland Security here in the United States. We tend to think of the operational technology aspects of that. And, and by that, I mean the industrial control systems and the things that are keeping the plant running or the manufacturing Mm -hmm. facility running and and those things. As it turns out, if an IT system uh, is the target of this adversarial kind of activity, it could still impact the business. So my question that I'm asking myself and that I'm talking to other security researchers to try to understand is, have we defined critical infrastructure improperly? Let me speak specifically to Colonial because it was a billing system that was attacked. Um, And when the billing system became unavailable, it was impossible for this organization to, uh, well, bill bill their customers. Uh, But more importantly, it was also impossible for them to track what was in their very long pipeline. Keep in mind, this pipeline is 5,500 miles long. It's a long pipe. All right. Yeah. Um, And if you don't know what is in it and who put it in there, that's a problem. As it turns out, there is federal regulation that exists today that says if you are a pipeline operator and you cannot produce what is called a bill of lading, the bill of lading is the document that says what is in the pipe and who put it there. Uh, it is a federal regulation that says you have to be able to produce this bill of lading to operate. So at the point at which Colonial was unable to produce that bill of lading, they had no choice but to cease operations because it would have been against federal regulation at that time. Wow. So this, in, the, in this case, it was the IT system and there were 
regulatory consequences for not having the IT system up. Right. Uh, we have seen hacks of OT systems. So one part of the question is the vulnerability of OT systems. And the other part of the question is what counts as critical. Um, I, I get right. why oil is, but I mean, is, uh, is are, are streetlights really critical infrastructure? Um, I think if they all went down and people were getting into, you know, thousands of accidents, the answer might change. <laughs> So, so I guess, so what do you feel about that? (laughs) No, I I mean, that's exactly, uh, you're spot on. That's exactly what I was talking about is how we have thought about and how we have classified critical versus non-critical. Maybe we've not done a good job at understanding that. You mentioned streetlights and, and, and that's a fantastic example because many Uh, Traffic control systems, uh, particularly in larger cities in the United States, are managed by industrial control systems. So imagine that you're a terrorist that wants to disrupt the society of their enemy, whomever that is. Um, One good way to do that is to, to, to stop traffic lights from functioning properly. Imagine in a huge city like where I am in Houston or New York or Los Angeles, where all of a sudden all the lights are red all the time. Now you've got Mm. gridlock. Or even worse, imagine that all the lights were green all the time. Holy smokes. I I mean, it's it's a mess. So I use the example of the billing system at Colonial just to underscore the idea that by our currently agreed-upon definition of critical infrastructure – an IT system might not meet that criteria, but as it turns out, if the business can't function in the absence of that IT system, then yeah, I think that is critical infrastructure. And that that's I think that's where our industry and in InfoSec, we need to get a little better at marrying the relationship of the OT OT systems to to those IT systems. Mm-hmm. So Malicious hackers seem to be uh, looking for as many different things they can get into to see how disruptive they can be. Um, And if we're talking Mm -hmm. about IT and OT and the intersection of the two, we've just opened it up to almost all of modern day life. Um, yeah, it, it becomes an almost unthinkable nut to crack. I mean, how how are people thinking about um, how to start defining the problem? And and you know, do you despair at the possibility of ever getting it all under control? Or or you know, what do you do to to proceed from here? I I. I Oh my goodness. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, it, it suddenly becomes, if we start including all IT systems that a, any particular business uses, yeah, it, it's a lot to wrap your arms around. And so I agree with your characterization. One example, um, uh, also related to energy, but a different part of the energy supply chain. Think about energy producers, the people that create the electricity that you and I and everybody else uses at our homes, um, 
you know, once upon a time, we had meter readers that would come to our houses and businesses and they would look at what the numbers were on the meter and then they would um, write that number down and then we would be billed mm. appropriately. Now we have smart meters that through some mechanism, there's a variety of ways it can be done, but that telemetry goes from the meter on the house or the business and it goes back to the inner energy distributor that is able to bill. So now all of a sudden, a consumer's home or business is a part of the outer perimeter. So you're right. So like, do we do we say that critical infrastructure includes, you know, someone's house that has a smart meter on the side of it? Because it's possible that could be an attack vector, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I, I think the answer, though, is like, you know, we can't – in to avoid this becoming an enormous problem that is unsolvable and everyone getting stuck in, you know, paralysis by analysis, so <laughs> to speak, uh, what we need to think about is we there are information assets that businesses depend upon. And when I say information assets, I don't mean the computers, the routers and switches. Those are commodities that you know we buy and we depreciate over mm -hmm. 36 months and then we throw them away and we buy new ones. The information assets are what are the data points that we consume to run our business. So what we need to do is figure out uh, from point A to point B, whatever our business is, what are those information assets that we're using and which ancillary systems that are responsible for getting us that telemetry so that we can consume and and continue to function. So in other words, in the case of the billing system, maybe it is that it wasn't considered critical because it was just IT, it mm -hmm. wasn't OT. So I think we need to do a better job as information security professionals. My job is to help the people that I work with, the organizations that I work with, become better at figuring out like what what do we actually depend on because i think a lot of folks were surprised that the absence of an it system could take down a pipeline because you know technically you could still push the product through the right. pipe right but it, you know but it, then it then it becomes a whole complicated conversation about well what are they you know legally allowed to do in the country in which they're operating and so on so, yeah, it, it is it, it's going we're not going to find the answer quickly, I think. But what I think we need to do is do a better job uh, instead of looking at, you know, in like the vulnerabilities on an individual host. That's important. That's interesting. But we need to take a more holistic and high level point of view and say system to system. How are these things interconnected and how do we depend upon them to do what it is that we're trying to do? So the question in part, uh, so one aspect of this question, we're taught when we talk about colonial in particular, they got into the IT system, mm -hmm. uh, got the, got the IT system yeah. bollocks in, in for, you know, to, for, for safety and security reasons, you shut down the pipeline because you, you, you can't verify what's in the pipe. But there are probably instances uh, where, uh, you know, somebody has gotten into through uh, an IT system. There was a, at least one hack I'm aware of where somebody got into the HVAC system and started, you know, getting into this that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, at some point, there's – as people – 
automate whatever it is, pipelines, uh, municipal systems, um, you know, the electrical grid, whatever, where there's going to be some connection between uh, the IT system and something that can open a gate, close a switch, um, turn something off that should be on. Um, I mean, in these instances, what do you do? Do you isolate IT from OT? Do you look at the two of them more holistically? Hmm. Uh, what are the what are the the prophylactic steps you can take to 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 protect yourself? Yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Uh, uh, yes, it, you've hit on a lot of very important topics, and you're right. You know, uh, impacting HVAC systems. I mean, I'm reminded of the uh, water utility in Florida that recently, you know, had an unauthorized user gain access to one of their control systems and change the amount of lye um, that, that was introduced right. into the water that's normally used to clean, you know, and the, the amount of lye that the adversary had introduced would have become poisonous at some point. So anyway, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, there's lots of examples of these things. You mentioned, uh, you know, separating OT and IT. I mean, people in, in the information security industry have spent a lot of time talking about this convergence of mm -hmm. OT and IT. And there's reasons why we want those systems that historically never communicated with one another. Uh, now we're encouraging right. them to communicate with one another. And from a security perspective, you're like, well, that's crazy. <laughs> like, like, why would you? Yeah, you know, but but there are very um, real reasons why a business um, in, in terms of the, the, the decision, the informed decisions they're able to make with access to this telemetry that's coming out of right. the plant. Um, and that benefits the consumer as well because it means the business can operate more efficiently and so on and so forth. But yeah, it, it's not just understanding how OT and IT are interconnected uh, back to colonial, not to pick on them too much, but in, in this case, it was a billing system that was apparently available from the open internet. So in addition to thinking about those interconnects within our organizations, I would say that generally speaking, businesses that depend on information technology need to be very aware of what their threat landscape looks like from the outside. In other words, if I'm an anonymous user out on the internet somewhere, what does your organization look like? If I would do reconnaissance on your organization, you know, performing network scans and those sorts of things, what am I going to find? And each organization needs to know that on their own uh, before the adversary figures it out. Because, let, let, I mean, you know, every time one of these, the, the, these attacks happens, I mean, the bad news is you've got hacked and bad stuff happens. The good news is they were just given a free penetration test uh, by a criminal. Um, <laughs> so, but it's better to do that on your own. You know, examine your perimeter, figure out what you look like, so to speak, on the Internet, and then start to make decisions based on that threat landscape and, and take action. Well, this is a thing I've gotten um, perhaps 
most cynical about over the past 25 or 30 years or so. Um, as I mentioned to you, I've talked to, uh, I've talked to, uh, you know, you, some of your peers over the years, uh, companies yeah. that provide, you know, uh, electric, uh, electronic security. And I think the lament uh, that I've heard from the beginning and hasn't changed is sure. We could build all the security options uh, in the world, but, uh, they're useless unless uh, unless our customers actually consent to use them. And I got to tell you, I haven't seen a lot of cons- customers out there that that have any inclination to to deal with security. I, I mean, I, I I've had let's pick on Target. Target had two security breaches in the space of two <laughs> or three years. I mean, you know, there was, yeah. there's no penalty for the first one. And, and, you know, I, I, it was inconceivable to me that there's a second one. I understand that literally everyone is under attack constantly. Um, how do we induce people to take security more serious? Oh boy. Yeah. What a great question. And Target's an interesting example because you're correct. During the first incident, they had the tools in place. And in fact, during the incident response, it was discovered that the information they needed to respond was indeed within the defensive controls that they had in place. They, It's not that they chose not to take action. They mm. just didn't. Uh, because they weren't properly trained or whatever. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you, you can you can bring that horse to water all you want. Here is the problem, I think. And, I, and I, uh, I'm, I'm going to be very careful okay. here, Brian, because I work, I work for a security consultancy. So my job, my career depends on people wanting my organization to help them. The problem, I think, is that security is largely viewed as a cost Hmm. center. It's difficult for most organizations to draw a line between the money we spend on information security and the revenue that comes in for any given organization. So if I, if I work for a company and I am the largest green widget manufacturer in the world, no one makes more green widgets than I do. And I'm the best at this. Um, But as it turns out, information security is really far away from my Mm -hmm, core competence mm -hmm. as, you know, making green Mm -hmm. widgets. So for me, as your CISO, for example, let's say I'm your CISO. I was like, yeah, we make green widgets, but we really need to spend more money on information security. We don't have enough data, actuarial data over time to be able to say, how much is a lack of spending on information security going to cost us in the long term in terms of wh- how much how expensive is a cybersecurity mm-hmm. incident and it's a deficiency of the fact that our industry is very young uh, information security that is um, uh, you know, it, it, security has been a problem as long as there have been right. computers but the way we understand information security today, kind of in the internet era, I would put that line at somewhere around where the dot com bubble <laughs> burst. Uh, so late late 1990s, early mm-hmm. 2000s is when there was a huge change. 
so it's been 20 something years and we still don't yet fully understand the impacts of information security spend versus uh, the cost of recovery. I, I, I would say this, preparing for an incident is always going to be less expensive than recovering from one. But to get back uh, slowly <laughs> to your original question, which was, you know, you we're all all that have been around long enough are frustrated by this. How do we get people to understand? We have to stop thinking about information security as a cost center. We need to start trying to understand that information security is an, an enabler of business. Um, so we can't, you know, I can't sell my green widgets on the internet without a secure website. Uh, and, and so to have a secure website, I know the basic things like, oh, I need to have an SSL, a TLS certificate, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So some of these basic concepts, I think we, as in, information security professionals, we need to do a better job of explaining that this isn't just a giant cost center. This is actually enabling your business and preventing these terrible things from happening. So that's the inducement. That's the carrot. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. as I've uh, as I've whined repeatedly during our conversation, uh, it, <laughs> people don't seem to be getting it. Corporations don't seem to be getting it. Um, and recently, there have been uh, there's been talk about introducing a stick into the system. Um, you know, enforcing yeah. people to, to pay attention to their security. What do you know about those conversations? Though, uh, yeah, how intuitive. Uh, you're correct. So if, if everybody, if every individual in every organization could be depended upon to do the right thing, just because it is the right thing to do, then we would not have to have laws and we would not have law enforcement. Oh, so my God. So if forth. we could just get all Americans to wear a mask. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so so what, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. You know, but the fact is people are complicated machines uh -huh. that are unpredictable sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the answer to your question is I do think you're right. There needs to be a stick. And, and what we learned from Colonial Pipeline specifically is very interesting, that there are very stringent regulations that exist in the United States as it relates to power generation. So if you're an electric company, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how you generate the electricity, whether it's coal, natural gas, wind, uh, solar, whatever. Mm -hmm. There are very specific rules that you have to follow as it relates to cybersecurity, as dictated by the Department of Energy. Now, oil and gas, on the other hand, is not nearly as stringently regulated. So in the case of a pipeline company, there are not these rules that exist that say that you have to check your perimeter. You have to do annual vulnerability uh, assessments, maybe, and, and so on and so forth. So I do think the stick you're alluding to is going to be in the form of new regulations specifically for, uh, for, for pipeline companies, certainly. It might include the broader oil and gas industry, but right now the Department of Homeland Security has already come out and said, we are looking at new regulations to dictate 
proper behavior of cybersecurity for pipeline companies. I wouldn't be surprised if that spread beyond pipeline companies to include the broader oil and gas industry in general. So you're not wrong. We are at that point where further regulation is is required and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, does this become kind of a – so my next thing is I'm thinking about is um, some of the big – infrastructure uh, ambitions uh, that the federal government has. Um, Does it make sense to advocate for security to be, you know, cybersecurity to be considered um, in those types of plans? Um, I'm thinking, you know, you were talking about the um, the municipality in Florida who had their their water supply mm-hmm. taken over. There have been a couple of mm-hmm. whole cities that have been shut down because of ransomware uh, attacks. Um, how should we think about should we think about cybersecurity as a a national infrastructure issue, not just not just pipelines and, and power companies? Absolutely. I, I mean. Yeah, yes, we should. And I realize that your listeners might say, well, hey, you know, Damon works for a cybersecurity consultancy. <laughs> so, of course, he's going to pay it. But, you know, hear me out. Um, we live in a in, in a modern society that we live in. So much of our day to day lives are controlled by the successful transformation of information from one place to another to make businesses run. I mean, do a thought experiment one day when you get up in the morning, uh, you know, from the time your feet touch the floor to the time you you go to work, you know, how many of the things that you depend on are based on industrial systems? I mean, you know, you brush your teeth, where'd that toothbrush came come mm-hmm. from? It was manufactured somewhere, then it was put on a truck. And it was shipped somewhere, and then it was in a store where you bought it. Um, the the federal, the Biden administration has come out with a very ambitious infrastructure um, plan, as as you alluded to, it, and it, it includes a lot of things, most of which are beyond my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. But all of them include information assets, and all of these projects depend on. Uh, our ability to uh, control the flow of information in a safe manner. I mean, even if you're talking about highway construction projects, I mean, Mm -hmm. modern highways have smart signage, Mm -hmm. you know, that can flash up warnings if there's, you know, a traffic accident along the way, or they can shift lanes. Uh, You know, if if you can, uh, if you've ever been to a city that has, um, HOV lanes that run in one direction during rush hour in the morning and they run in another direction. I mean, all of this stuff is, is for our convenience, but if the information systems and the operational technology systems that are supporting those things are not functioning properly, then chaos ensues. Now in the case of colonial pipeline and JBS foods, and the Florida water treatment plant. I mean, all of those things were somewhat opportunistic, I think. I don't Mm -hmm. think that they were targeted specifically. I think they were very unlucky. But it further underscores the importance of this issue, which is, can you imagine if an adversary against our country did 
actually start to target how bad it would be. Well, I, I get the sense I've, I've, I understand that, uh, um, there are, <laughs> there are now, uh, tools, uh, available, uh, to perform hacks, malicious hacks, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think uh, I think the the quote that that caught my eye was that you know before you actually had to know something about information technology and science, and and now any idiot can can, can <laughs> hack with these tools. Uh, that's that that was um, eye opening to read that. It, it, well, it, it, that's the peculiar thing. So. Um, uh, Colonial Pipeline was attacked by DarkSide, mm-hmm. uh, which is a malware as a service organization, MAAS. So not only do DarkSide themselves engage in these criminal activities, but they will make their platform available to other groups that wish to engage in this criminal activity. Same thing with JBS Foods. JBS Foods was attacked by R Evil. Um, which is another malware as a service. Mm-hmm. So if you go to in the beginning of my career uh, in the you know early to mid 1990s, cyber you know hackers, and I'm reluctant to use that term because uh, it, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. but you know a lot of this type of activity was high-tech vandalism. So mm-hmm. you would gain unauthorized access to a web- website, you would change a logo to a rude picture and ha ha ha, I made you look foolish on the internet because I, you know, changed your logo to something else. Um, It is organized crime. Let's be clear here, Brian. These are organized criminals. These people are making a lot of money and you're right. It used to take sophisticated computer scientists to figure out how to do this stuff. And now malware as a service as a platform it's a business you can you can partner with people with organizations like dark side and our evil and you can I, I i'm not encouraging people to become criminals because thank you, you know, yes don't thank do you that. yeah don't <laughs> do that uh, uh, <laughs> but you're 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 correct it, it's not just the realm of propeller head computer scientists anymore this is this is business this is organized crime these criminals are motivated by money full stop that that's it yeah. it uh i i just think about the consequences i've uh i i was talking to a fellow i don't I never looked up what the original problem was, but he was relating to me that sometime in the early 2000s, early 2010s, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was an internet outage uh, somewhere in Arizona and it sent the whole city back to the, the nineties. And I said, the 1990s. (laughs) And he said, no, the, the 1890s. I mean, it's easy. We take for granted the quick access. I told that. So my son is a teenager, um, just to give you perspective. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we were talking about you know um, the the smartphones we have in our pockets. And I made an offhand comment to him one day, and it's like, look, dude, the the phone you have in your pocket right now is more powerful than the flight control systems that were on the space shuttle. Right. 
when shuttle was still flying. And so the the advance in compute technology and the ability to share information is absolutely mind boggling. And I think it's easy. I mean, it's a testament to how effective those information systems are because we take it for granted mm-hmm. each and every day. Um, and you're not wrong. An entire city losing connectivity. I mean, what do you do? So I've been working from home full time since well before the pandemic. And I think, man, if my home ISP goes down, I'm I'm cut off. Right. You know, what do I do now? Smoke single. So 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 you're right. I mean, I, 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 on the one hand, the technology is robust. The technology is good. But we need to realize that as we have become more dependent upon it, it means it's more incumbent upon the service providers that depend on that technology to protect it uh, in, in better ways than they have been so far. That's my call back. That's my call to action is like it, it's tech, IT and OT. These are not cost centers. These are things that you depend upon to run your organization. So treat them as such. You and I, our job is to talk about these issues and to kind of raise awareness on why it's so critical. Um, and it's easy to become dour if cynical. Yep, about, I'm there. Okay, well, you know, the bad guys are always going to be smarter. Sorry? I, I'm there. Oh, you're there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's it's easy to become dour and cynical, but all, believe it or not, despite all the problems that I have pointed out, I am still optimistic that the benefits we have from all this interconnected technology, uh, from smart thermostats and control systems, talking to IT systems, all of that stuff, the benefits we get are still greater than the downsides we have. So let's not lose focus on the fact that there's reasons the technology exists, there's reasons why we use it, and we we can be successful. Just know that it's no cyber crime is no different than any, any other type of crime. Every time we find a good way to defeat something, the bad guys are going to find another way, and that that's that's just how it is. But again. I am an optimist. We can do this. <laughs> we will win. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, thank you, Damon. It was a real pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. That was Damon Small, a cybersecurity expert who works for the NCC Group. In our conversation, we alluded to an attack on JBS Foods, but didn't explain what that was. JBS is one of the largest meat processing companies in the U.S. At the end of May, the company was subject to an attack that forced it to shut down all operations, nine plants located all across the country, for close to a week. The FBI attributed this attack to a different criminal group, a group also in Russia. After we recorded this interview with Damon, Colonial Pipeline revealed that its attackers got in through a VPN, The company noted that this part of its VPN was not set up with two-step authentication, which is now a very common safety mechanism. It was also revealed that Colonial Pipeline paid a ransom to DarkSide, paying in Bitcoin. A few days after that was announced, the Department of Justice said the U.S. had recovered 63.7 of the 75 Bitcoins that Colonial had paid in ransom. 
That had the ancillary effect of depressing the markets for cryptocurrency. The whole point of cryptocurrency is supposed to be that it can't be tracked. Darkside released a statement saying it had shut itself down, citing unspecified pressure from the United States. As a practical matter, there's no telling what that means. It's hard to imagine that members of the criminal organization all just got straight jobs selling cars or cooking in restaurants or whatever. In my lead-in, I mentioned that we know for a fact that the cyber onslaught is relentless and that pretty much everyone has been hacked. It is also true that the vast majority of cyber attacks are defeated. Maybe Damon Small is justified in his optimism. Maybe. And that is it for the weekly briefing. Thank you for listening. This podcast is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. The weekly briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.